for tuning into the 451st episode of Barbershop Sports Talk with me, Daryl D. Lane, as always. Wherever you are, however you may be listening, I thank you for making me and this show part of your day, whether it be via Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, Pandora, whichever podcasting app or platform you may be listening to me via. Then have a great podcast for all you guys today. Going to have Chris Tomlinson. Uh, he covers the Minnesota Vikings for the St. Paul Pioneer Press. We have a great conversation. We talk Vikings football also. He got a chance to kind of work at the Akron Beacon Journal. Uh, and there he got to kind of watch LeBron James. He also covered LeBron in Miami a little bit in 12 and 13. So we talk about his experiences there. And then in the second half of the podcast, Sam Yipon, who covers the Golden State Warriors for Heavy.com and Hoops Hype. Now, before we get to both these gentlemen... I'm going to give my shameless plug. As always, first-time listener, thank you, but subscribe and follow right now. Also, share this podcast with your friends and family, whether it be via Reddit threads, Facebook groups, etc., etc. Check on the description below, specifically if you use Spotify. I have everything timestamped. You can click on the timestamp, and we'll which send you to whichever part of the podcast you would most like to listen to, folks. It's for your convenience. Follow me on Twitter, at NightTrain underscore Lane. Also, subscribe to my YouTube channel. Just type in Daryl Lane. You will find it. I post three to five-minute clips of this podcast right here, as well as my syndicate show, Outside the Shop. And lastly, if you have Apple or iTunes, give me five stars and a great review. For some odd reason, right? If you don't like the pod, then don't say anything. Because you know what your mama told you? If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. And could up next at the break on Barbershop Sports Talk. We're going to have Chris Tomlinson on the show. Could up next at the break on Barbershop Sports Talk. Oh, we're back with Barbershop Sports Talk, and we have a very special guest with us, Chris Thomason. He covers the Minnesota Vikings for the St. Paul Pioneer Press. How you doing, man? Hey, doing well. Thanks for having me. So, the first question I have to ask you is this, right? So, the Minnesota Vikings, they fire Mike Zimmer, they bring in Kevin O'Connell. What do you think is the biggest change Kevin O'Connell is going to bring that maybe Mike Zimmer wasn't providing? Well, what the players talked about during the spring was just kind of the culture had changed and team bonding and, and that kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, we'll see if any of that translates to winning. I mean, uh, Kevin O'Connell took them all out to uh, this kind of, uh, oh, uh, how would I explain it? It wasn't a golf course. It was like a, a place where they have a driving range, a fun center, and they did the team bonding experience that one day, things of that nature. So, uh, I mean, Zimmer was pretty much all business. This is football, that sort of thing. So it's definitely a more relaxed atmosphere on the Vikings. So uh, I guess we'll have to see if uh, that translates to winning at all. How would you describe the way Mike Zimmer ran the team? 
I mean, he was pretty much a no-nonsense guy, but uh, after he was fired, some of the players came out on the record, and I mean, Eric Hendricks kind of said that uh, we don't need a fear-based organization, was his quote. Brian O'Neill, Pro Bowl tackle, kind of said, hey, you know, you're a rookie, and you at least want someone to say hi to you in the hallway. I mean, when he was the coach, people didn't talk about, or at least players didn't talk on the record about such things, but uh, he definitely kept a distance. I mean, uh, I wrote a big story on Kellen Mond in which I talked to him last month, and Mond pretty much had no relationship with Zimmer. They, they didn't really even talk at all. So he kept a distance uh, with his players. So, and I know you're not actually on the team, but how how does that work? Then? How, how does a coach go, right? You know, part, part of being a coach is not just the X's and O's. It's like developing relationships with these people. Because <laughs> then, that, you know, they're willing to run through a brick wall for you. They're willing to fight with you. It's a lot easier to ask somebody to do something when they trust you, when they know you, right? Well, Zimmer had a close relationship to players on defense. I mean, he was pretty much, he ran the defense. He was the defensive coordinator, even though others had that title when he was there. I mean, it was Zimmer's defense. And Zimmer often had a very hands-on, hands-off approach on offense. But uh, unless he got perturbed and the offense wasn't doing well, it was a little different this past year when Clint Kubiak was obviously over his head as the offensive coordinator and Zimmer meddled a little bit more but when he had an established offensive coordinator such as when Norv Turner was around such as when Gary Kubiak was around I mean Zimmer pretty much was hands off on the offense and uh, didn't have a great relationship really with anybody perhaps on offense you know maybe an Adam Thielen type guy since he'd been there so many years but or a Dalvin Cook, they had a good relationship, but basically he was often hands off on offense. So, what do you attribute to the deterioration of the Vikings? Because right when Mike Zimmer first gets there, they have that. I think that was twelve wins they had. They go to the NFC Championship game with Case Keenum. What do you attribute? Because it seemed like they got worse and worse from there. Well, they signed Kirk Cousins to the huge contract, and that didn't work out initially. I mean, eight, seven, and one during and missed the playoffs during Cousins' first season, and when you signed a quarterback to such a huge salary after they had been paying modest salaries to their quarter or to their uh, quarterbacks, I mean, that didn't give them the money to bring in other players. Uh, and uh, the defense kind of started to get old and they didn't have the free agent money to bring in replacements. So they brought in lesser guys as replacements. Um, some guys couldn't be resigned because they didn't have the money, and it was just kind of a gradual deterioration of the defense. Guys getting older, guys leaving, not suitable replacements being brought in. So the defense went from being top-ranked in total defense and in scoring defense in 2017 that pretty much fallen off the map the last couple of years. And then interestingly, at the same time, the offense really started to flourish. I mean, Dalvin Cook was obviously a great selection in the second round. Justin Jefferson, a great selection in the first round. And so if they had somehow been able to keep their defense intact at the same time the offense was getting better, I mean, they definitely would have been 
a team that could have done some damage in the playoffs, but the defense has been so bad the last couple of years, they didn't make the playoffs. Because then they start out like 0-6 last year, and then they kind of got it back together and he kept his job. Why do you think they gave him another year after that season a few years ago? No, they started off 1-5. Oh, it was 1-5, okay. Yeah, and then they kind of made a run and uh, got back into close to playoff contention and looked like if they hadn't blown a home, home games against Dallas and Chicago, they might have made the playoffs in 2020. But... Basically, they made the playoffs in 2019, and before the 2020 extension, they gave, or excuse me, before the 2020 season, they gave contract extensions to both Mike Zimmer and Rick Spielman, who was then the general manager. So, at that point, you kind of made your bed, and you had given them contract extensions that hadn't even started, didn't even kick in until 2021. So, that would have been eating a lot of money prematurely if they had dump those guys after the 2020 season. So, Kevin O'Connell, he has a relationship with the defensive guys as well as the offensive guys? I mean, that's what he kind of said. Uh, he had one telling quote during the spring is he wants the players to know, hey, I'm not just an offensive coach. I mean, sometimes these offensive type head coaches get pigeonholed as, you know, hey, he's a offensive guy, but uh, he wants to be an all-around coach, and he's uh, going into defensive meetings. And I mean, obviously, Ed Donatel, who's the defensive coordinator, is going to make the lion's share of decisions on defense. But uh, O'Connell wants to be more than just kind of the guy who worries about the offense and then let Donatel take care of the defense type situation. You think there's any concerns about the fact with Kevin O'Connell, right? He's going to call plays this year, and he didn't call plays when he was with McVay and the Rams. Yeah, I mean that's definitely a concern. I mean, uh, well, any of course, anytime you bring in somebody who has never been a head coach before, I mean, obviously you don't know how that is going to work out, and uh, the fact also that he hasn't called plays before. I mean, sure, that's. Uh, a concern, and uh, we'll just have to see how it all unfolds. So I want to go to Kalamon now. So they drafted him in the third round. I think he was a guy that people were looking at in the draft. He had some potential, had some promise, was really good in the SEC with A&M. Uh, why do you think he never got a chance with Minnesota, particularly towards the end of the year? And do you think there could be any quarterback controversy. There could be any competition. If Kirk Cousins doesn't play well, there could be any chance for Kellen Mond. Well, no. I mean, Cousins will have to get hurt. He's got this year, next year left in his contract, and it's all guaranteed. So, uh, I mean, there's nobody really in the system who would be considered to start. I mean, uh, I mean, Kirk Cousins would have to falter in unbelievable terms and throw crazy numbers of interceptions, but he's never done that in his career, so I'm not expecting that. But uh, back to Kellen Mond, I mean, as I wrote last month, he got COVID during training camp, and he said he never was the same. He lost about 10 pounds, and it really affected him, and uh, that wasn't kind of revealed until last month, and it was well chronicled that Zimmer said before after they were eliminated from the playoffs, the next to last game against Green Bay, somebody asked if he wanted to see 
Kellen Mond play against Chicago in the meaningless finale, and he said, you know, no, and why not? Well, I see him every day in practice. <laughs> so a lot, part of that was just Zimmer being gruff and uh, to the point. I mean, he backed off on that ne- the next day and said, well, he's a third-string quarterback. But the bottom line is uh, Zimmer didn't want to, as I wrote last month, he didn't want him to draft Mond. He wanted a defensive player at that particular juncture. That's what Dylan Mond's dad said. And, I mean, they had really no relationship at all. And uh, Mond got his chance in the preseason, didn't look particularly good. I mean, when they drafted him initially, the thinking was he would be the backup. But then at the end of the preseason, they quickly realized that that wasn't going to be the case, and they brought back Sean Mannion. But, I mean, part of that was Mon's COVID, and he wasn't quite the same player. So he says he's night and day from where he was last year. I guess we'll uh, we'll find out come training camp in the preseason. Why does it seem like Kirk Cousins can't take that next step because he's really good, probably one of the best 12 to 14 QBs in the league, uh, really efficient, but take that next step to where he can be more of a uh, game breaker as opposed to a game manager. Well, that's the mystery. I mean, you look at Kirk Cousins' numbers, and if you covered up his quarterback one loss record, you would look at his stats and think, oh, this guy has been taking teams deep into the playoffs, maybe won a Super Bowl or two, but. It just hasn't translated to wins, not in Washington, not in Minnesota. I mean, he's just destined to have been a 500 quarterback. And, uh, I mean, with the Vikings, I mean, I mean, part of it has been, uh, you know, the bad luck. We talked about the defense falling apart. I mean, pretty much when Cousins arrived with his huge contract and what have you, the defense falls apart. So that's affected Cousins here, but uh, obviously he – sometimes in clutch situations, has faltered, hasn't been a guy who's often been able to bring his team back in terms of comebacks and and that sort of thing. So uh, we'll see what happens uh, this year under a new coach, Kevin O'Connell, who he had worked with previously in Washington in 2017. I mean, the Vikings, when O'Connell came in, one of his first priorities was he wanted Kirk Cousins to be his quarterback. So He's got that, and we'll see what happens. When the Vikings signed Kirk Cousins to that fully guaranteed contract, I'd have to imagine they thought they were going to get more than what they did. Do you think that's an error in their ways? Do you think the Vikings regret what they did? Because they could have just, by that logic, I guess, retained Case Keenum, kept the team really whole, and just tried to play football and win games the way they were doing before. You know, I mean, if you look back, it's so easy to say, oh, it wasn't a good move. But at the time, I mean, it looked like, Cousins could be the final piece. They went to the NFC championship game while they were blasted by Philadelphia. They bring in Kirk Cousins as their quarterback, and it looked like he potentially would be the final piece. I mean, everybody or most people seem to be on board with that move back then. I mean, I think it might be, It's not, and it's not like Case Keenum has done anything since he left the Vikings. I mean, he, he just flamed out in Denver. So would Case Keenum been the answer? I don't know. I mean, that Keenum season was, it was unbelievable. I mean, a guy who never done anything in the NFL has never done anything since. Just everything 
went right for him. I mean, every crazy ball that he threw looked like it was going to be intercepted. You know, a Viking comes down with it. I mean, he, so it was just a crazy season, and uh, I don't think people could have seen the defense faltering the way it has. So, I mean, it's, it's hard to look back and say, in hindsight, it, you know, it was a bad move. And, uh, I mean, the chapters, I mean, there's no doubt that Kirk Cousins' tenure has been a disappointment. He's made the playoffs once in four years, but it's, it's not over yet, so we'll have to see how it plays out. What do you think made that NFC Championship run, run team so special? Well, that team, uh, we've touched upon their defense, number one, in the league in uh, scoring defense and total defense. I mean, that was what's kind of interesting though, is that was kind of the type of team that uh, Mike Zimmer would want. You would think a defense first team, a quarterback who wasn't necessarily flashy, wasn't putting up huge numbers, but wasn't making mistakes and what have you. So that's the crazy part. I mean, it's still a mystery to me that Zimmer never really got along with Case Keenum. I mean, that entire season, he wouldn't even say that he's the regular starter. He kept saying he's the starter this week. So it's kind of bizarre that uh, that just seemed to be the perfect Zimmer team and going to the flashy, makes a lot of money type quarterback in Cousins wasn't. I mean, it, there's been lots of speculation. Zimmer's never said anything on the record that he didn't want Cousins back then. But then again, he didn't seem to like Case Keenum. I mean, Teddy Bridgewater was always was always Zimmer's guy. But you asked about that season. I mean, everything just kind of came together. I mean, we touched upon Keenum having that magical season. The defense was great, and then obviously – they win that game against New Orleans with Diggs's, uh, you know, reception on the last play. So until the championship game, just everything kind of seemed to go right, and then it all fell apart, and it hasn't really fully recovered since then. Why do you think Teddy Bridgewater was able to kind of get in Zimmer's good graces and all these other guys can't? I think he just liked the way that Bridgewater commanded so much respect in the locker room. The players all loved Teddy Teddy in the locker room and uh, it really helped mold the team together. Defensive players loved him, offense players loved him, and that sort of stuff. And they haven't had that quarterback since then with that magnetic personality. I mean and it was a magnetic personality in a in a in a positive manner. I mean he was he was a team first guy, great attitude. He made a Pro Bowl as a player before his injury. And then, you know, they ended up bringing in Sam Bradford, who was kind of a distant guy who kept to himself and cousins uh has a little you know, he's more outgoing cousins is than Bradford, but uh it's kind of he, he doesn't command that respect that Bridgewater did from the whole team. So Keenum and Cousins weren't as beloved as Bridgewater. They just weren't able to galvanize everybody like he was. Well, no, no quarterback. I mean, I've covered the team since 2013, and and no quarterback has galvanized the team. Uh, you, you know, even close to Teddy did during his uh, 
his tenure, you know, namely his first two years as a starter, 14 and 15. Then, of course, he had the injury in 16 and didn't play much after that. Where does that Stefan Diggs play against the Saints, that Minnesota miracle, where does that rank in terms of plays you've seen? Um, it's, I mean, it probably is number one. I can't off the top think of, of one. I mean, my, my story's written and I'm ready to push the button and it's going right on the web and <laughs> got my finger on the trigger and all of a sudden, what the? Glad I didn't push it and it got posted. So I went into a crazy rewrite mode. I mean, uh, if you just look at that play, uh, I mean, the way the defender just f- fell down and, I mean, all he had to do was they had no timeouts left. He just, if he if he hit him, kept him in bounds, then game's over. Then there's no way they get off another play. And if he had gotten right out of bounds, they would have had a very long field goal attempt. But uh, yeah, it was just truly an amazing play. There's no doubt about it. What was your immediate reaction as soon as you saw that? My immediate reaction was I got to write on it. <laughs> do a complete rewrite of a story and get it online within about five or six minutes because I've got to get to the locker room for interviews and thankfully uh, I was able to do that and uh, I believe I had the right team winning in the first story I put up. Why do you think it didn't work out with Stefan Diggs in Minnesota at the end of the day? I mean, basically, <clears throat> he was not enthralled with kind of the, the Zimmer run first mentality. I mean, you know, Zimmer there, if you look at the stats, there have been times in which Zimmer's teams, you know, threw the ball plenty. I mean, some of it was coming from behind, but he made it clear and he was outspoken that he wanted to have a run first type team with Dalvin Cook and have a defense that keep the games close and, and that sort of thing and uh, I think that was not what Diggs obviously wanted and you know I, I'm not, I mean Diggs uh, still was kind of always the number two receiver also after Adam Thielen as well and he wanted to go somewhere that they threw the ball more and he would be the man and in his very first season in Buffalo all pro and put up those numbers so uh Obviously, he got what he wanted. So Diggs was the number two receiver in Minnesota. Thielen was the number one. Well, I mean, if you look at, uh, I mean, Diggs had never made a Pro Bowl prior to going to Buffalo. Thielen had made two. If you look at the stats, Thielen was uh, generally, when he wasn't hurt, the, the yardage leader and uh, was the more popular of the, the two players, although uh Diggs' popularity certainly was helped by the miracle catch. But, yeah, I mean, you know, 1A and 1B, but uh, definitely Diggs, I wouldn't say, was ahead of, he wasn't ahead of feeling in the pecking order. Who do you think was better in Minnesota, Diggs or Justin Jefferson now? Um, what, playing for the... If, playing for the Vikings, Vikings playing for the Vikings, playing for the Vikings. Yeah, I mean, obviously, obviously Jefferson, I mean, the numbers aren't even aren't even close to what Jefferson did and Diggs did in Minnesota. Of course, Diggs was on better teams, but, um, and, and Jefferson's numbers have been helpful, but about the team's not as good and they're playing 
from behind and throwing more. But, uh, I mean, Je- Jefferson's off to one heck of a start, and I think when all shakes out, I mean, he'll have the better NFL career. Where would you rank the Minnesota Vikings in terms of teams in the North? Well, now the second after Green Bay. Okay, would you say they're a clear second? Yeah, yeah. It's. Uh, I mean, I think the Packers, until they're dethroned, I mean, I think they're still a solid favorite this year, even though they obviously have some issues at receiver. And then after that, it's not even close. I mean, Chicago's rebuilding and Detroit is Detroit. So what I also want to ask you is, uh, so you worked at the Akron Beacon Journal in uh, 2001. I want to know, just during that time, was LeBron James ever on your radar? Because I think he came to the league in 03, so that would have mean would have mean he was in high school during that time. So are you kind of already hearing the hype with LeBron? I just want to know what that was all going on for you during that time. Yeah, I covered the Cleveland Cavaliers for the Akron Beacon Journal from 1998 to 2001. And, uh, I mean, LeBron really emerged on the scene prior to his uh, sophomore year. I mean, they won a state championship as a freshman, and then he goes to uh, the the summer basketball camps, and they're calling him the number one player in his class in the country. So in 2000-2001 season, his sophomore year, I actually helped cover several games involving LeBron his sophomore year as well as his junior year and I remember I went to one game and uh, brought along former Cavaliers legend Austin Carr and former Akron St. Vincent St. Mary star Jerome Lane who also played in the uh, NBA and kind of did a column in which they would watch and critique LeBron as he played as a sophomore and that sort of thing. And it was interesting that they were saying when he was a sophomore still, it wasn't as accepted then players going straight from the NBA, or excuse me, from high school to the NBA. They were saying, yeah, you know, he's very good and all that, but he definitely needs to go to college, needs the year of seasoning. That's what they were saying as a sophomore. But I think by his junior year, when he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated, I mean, everybody knew that this guy was going to go straight to the pros and be the number one pick in the uh, draft. And then, of course, during right after his junior year, he had an illegal workout with the Cavaliers in which he went up against several of their players currently on their roster. And the players that I talked to, I mean, said he pretty much dominated the scrimmage after his junior year of high school against uh, current NBA players. And... Uh, John Lucas and the coach later got suspended for a couple of games and the team fined for illegally working him out. But, yeah, I mean, everybody for a couple of years before it happened was uh, praying and hoping that the Cavaliers would get the number one pick and get LeBron, and that's what happened. Did you think, I mean, I guess it's hard to say anybody would think a high school kid would, you know, do the things that LeBron ended up doing, but watching it in real time, were you just like, yeah, like, maybe he's not going to be what he ended up being, but, like, He's going to be in the league for a long time, and he's going to be really damn good. Well, when I first saw him as a sophomore, I mean, he was great 
all around great going to the basket and all facets of his game, but his outside shot needed work. And he actually didn't take a lot of outside jumpers because he could just maneuver in so easily. So uh, I had some doubts at that time about his uh, outside shot. And at that particular point, until LeBron entered the NBA in 2003-04, I mean, all the high school players that would come in, Kevin Garnett, Kobe Bryant, I mean, Garnett averaged about nine points a game. Kobe averaged like 7.6 or so. So you're, you're certainly thinking LeBron has a chance to develop into a great player, but what was so stunning that it happened so immediately in the NBA, I mean, he averaged 20 points a game as a rookie. And you first heard about LeBron James a year prior when he was a freshman, right? Well, when he was a freshman, they won the state title, and he was this hot shot freshman, you know, and he was known around the area, but he wasn't known nationally. I mean, he didn't start to really get the national name until he went to, uh, I think, after his freshman year, would have been the summer of 2000, he goes to, uh, I guess it was, I don't know, Garfinkel's uh, summer camp in Pennsylvania, I think maybe it was, and he emerges as the number one player, and then that was kind of like, oh, wow, this guy must be really good, and then by the time he's a sophomore, I mean, people who knew, knew basketball, everybody in the country kind of knew about him. Did, did you hear about him before he was in high school? No, no, um, no. I mean, I was, wasn't paying that much attention. So he, I guess he, he would have been a freshman, what, 99, 2000. I got to Akron in January of 98. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know about him until he was a freshman at Akron St. Vincent St. Mary. So also, I want to ask you, what was it like uh, getting a chance to cover the Miami Heat when LeBron was there? Um, yeah, I mean, it was quite the, 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 the traveling uh, road show. I mean, uh, it was uh, a team put together in free agency, and some people rolled their eyes like, okay, you can't just put together stars like that and expect instant success. Well, there was an instant success the first year. They didn't win the title, but... Uh, the second year, I mean, uh, it's amazing, though, how close they won two titles, but it's amazing how close they came to uh, maybe not winning any titles when LeBron was in Miami. The first year they won the title, 2012, they were trailing the Pacers 2-1 to one with game four in Indiana and it wasn't looking good. This was, I guess, in an Eastern semifinal. Then Dwayne Wade went crazy and they ended up winning that series in seven games. And then the next year, they, or the next series, they've got Boston in the Eastern finals and uh, they lose game five at home to fall behind three to two and they're going to Boston in jeopardy being eliminated. Then LeBron absolutely goes crazy as one of the best games of his career. They win the title. And then, of course, the next year, 2013, I mean, game six, San Antonio. I don't know if you remember that one or how much time you spent studying that one. I mean, you know, the game the game was all but won by the Spurs. They were ready to hand them the trophy, and uh, there's that crazy Ray Allen shot. shot. And rebounds out. And, yeah, and then Ray Allen hits the three. So uh, it was kind of interesting how close they actually potentially came to winning no titles 
but they did end up winning two when LeBron was there and, of course, won the finals all four years. What was it like in 2011? And then you just saw, like, the hate that was kind of directed towards LeBron. Like, he was going to away arenas and everybody would just boo every time he touched the ball. Well, I actually didn't cover him in 2011. I covered him during their two championship years. So oh, I so 12. Of, I got there in the fall of 2011. And at that point, it was the theme was kind of like, you know, LeBron has to win a title this year because they put together this team and they fell apart in the finals and LeBron's reputation was sagging. If you recall, after the 2011 finals, he made some comment to the effect to a reporter, well, at the end of the day, I'm still LeBron James and you'll wake up, you know, having your humdrum life or whatever that comment was. So his popularity was was fairly low entering the 2011-12 season. And uh, But, you know, they ended up winning the next two titles. And uh, since then, uh, even though he's certainly lost in the finals, his share of time since then, I think he's, uh, his popularity has risen to kind of beyond reproach. So then let's go to that game six in Boston, right? Because the Celtics, I think Paul Pierce hits like a clutch shot in game five in Miami. They're going to game six. Everybody's counting them out. Were you just kind of like, there's no way? Because, right, they're in Boston. Uh, LeBron struggled against Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett, Ray Allen, Rondo, and all those guys. And it's like all the demons. If they lose that, everybody's talking about breaking up Chris Bosh, Dwayne Wade, LeBron. Like, did you kind of sense the pressure of the moment? Well, I don't think anybody was talking about breaking it up at that particular stage. But uh, I think a lot of people thought, you know, hey, maybe they're, they're done again. It's not going to It's not gonna happen. I mean, uh, LeBron was at risk of starting to get a reputation as kind of a playoff choker. I mean, uh, he'd been to the finals once before in 07. Granted, that team had nobody else besides LeBron with Cleveland. So, But you look at 2010, they lost to the Celtics in the playoffs, which makes him his exit from Cleveland. 2011, they blow it against Dallas. So, I mean, that, you know, you can make an argument that that's the defining game of LeBron's career because he was potentially going to be saddled with, okay, He's great in the regular season, but he's a playoff joker. And uh, he kind of, everything kind of started to turn for him then when he came up with that colossal, huge performance in uh, Game 6. And, of course, they still had to win Game 7 at home. I mean, it wasn't super close, but uh, it was moderately close in the fourth quarter, and they still had to close it out, which they, of course, did as well. Chris, I want to thank you for coming on the show, man. I appreciate it. Barbershop Sports Talk, and we have a very special guest with us, Sam Yep. He covers the Golden State Warriors for Heavy.com and Hoops Hype. How you doing, man? I'm doing well. How are you doing over there? I'm doing absolutely fantastic. So the first thing I have to ask you is this. 
When did you know that this Golden State Warriors team was special? Honestly, it it was hard to say because um, I started covering covering them back around February or so, and at that point they had some injuries going on. Um, I think uh, uh, Clay had kids come back in January, and then I believe uh, two games into his to him coming back, Draymond got hurt, so he was out for a while. And then Draymond was out for 20, 30 games or so. And then once he came back, uh, Steph Curry had that incident with Marcus Smart where Marcus Smart died for the ball and hurt Steph Curry. So he was out for a while. So it was very up in the air. They were losing a lot of games. Uh, I don't know if people, uh, non-Warriors fans, really like, paid attention, but heading into the playoffs, they, 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 kept, they kept telling the Every, after every game, they would kept telling me, just trying to tread water right now, trying to get back, to hopefully get everyone back up for the playoffs. And Steph, you know, he didn't, he didn't even play until game one uh, against Denver, right into the playoffs. And there were question marks surrounding um, how effective would he be because, remember, he came off the bench um, in the beginning because Jordan Poole was playing so well. So at that point, no one really knew. Um, they they were number they were a, a number one seed. I believe they were at eighteen and two to start the year. They really dropped off. They fell down to third heading into the uh, heading into the playoffs. And at at a one point they they could have fallen down to the fourth spot uh, with Dallas right behind their heels. Um, it honestly for me, I would say at the mid mid series against Denver when they were up. Uh, when they were up 3-1, it kind, of, it kind of felt like I could feel a little bit of the old Golden State, kind of kind of the Steph, Steph there, and then you had Clay. Clay was still kind of inconsistent at that point. Um, he was still trying to find his identity on defense, especially. Uh, Draymond was Draymond. Um, he, you know, he, he's not, he hasn't been the same. hasn't been able to shoot that jumper anymore. And then, um, and they had an, an extra... In a way, like a splash brother at pool party, uh, Jordan Poole, he was he was going bonkers just in the first first round. He was hitting and he scoring points in the twenties. Had some, I think he had, he might have had a thirty point game. I'm not really, I don't really remember completely. But um, once he got to the second round and they played, they played Memphis. I thought that was going to be the toughest matchup in the West. And even even more so the stunts. And once they once they they were down, I believe they were down two one in Memphis. I thought they might they. I thought it was. I thought if they get through Memphis, they have a great shot to win the title. Um, and at that point, um, I believe I believe they got they lost by like twenty or thirty points in Memphis. And the crown was chanting with that trick. And they were kind of dancing. I'm thinking, wow, like they really, they're so, they're so experienced that they don't even think too much about nerves or anything because they won so many titles together. At that point, once they tied it back uh, 2 2, uh, I thought, okay, this, they, they got this figured out. And sure enough, they, they, they beat the Grizzlies in six. And then they pretty much, they had a, I think it was a gentleman's sweep against the against the man, and then 
Um, and in the finals, I thought I wasn't like completely sure they were going to beat the Celtics because Celtics were a really good team. But once Steph really kind of held his own in Game Four, um, I thought, okay, this this team's probably going to win another title. Why did you think that the Grizzlies matched up so well with the Warriors? I think because they, the Grizzlies have a have a uh, have a roster. They can play small. They can play big. Stephen Adams. They can go. They can go big at the five. They can go small. Jaron Jackson at the five. It, it can even go smaller. And Brandon Clark there at the five. And that was kind of uh, the 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 big thing was the was the Warriors were they weren't sure if they can play five. You know, there were a lot of question marks. People were wondering. James Wiseman's not playing. Like, how are you guys gonna get a big there to, um, you know, to dominate the middle? And then they somehow had Kevin Kavanaugh come in, and he had like 22 rebounds one game against the Memphis Grizzlies, and then he kind of kept that up just going into the series against the Mavs. So um, he he really changed the series against the, the Grizzlies. In terms of um, that, they uh, Steve Kerr was really trying to find any rotation that would you know, kind of counter. Because uh, I remember Stephen Adams was out for the first two or three games against the Warriors with COVID, but when he came back, he really changed the series around for the Grizzlies in terms of like offensive rebounds and stuff. And then I remember uh, Draymond Green and Steph Curry telling. Uh, Steve Kerr after game three, like after that blowout loss, like hey, we need to we need to play Kevin, we need to start Kevin Looney because they're killing us on the boards, and you know Steve Kerr is trusting these guys so much. He, he listened to them, and he really countered and um, kind of put the pressure off Draymond and um, Clay uh, uh, off for the boards and stuff because they. They didn't have to rely on always going smart anymore to get the offensive potential. So it was really, really helpful. And yeah, it was Kevin Looney was a guy that really uh, changed the course of uh, the playoffs for them. So I'm, I'm very curious on your opinion on this, Clay Thompson. What did you feel just you know covering the team and watching? When did you feel that Clay started to get his groove back, particularly defensively? Because I think we've all known. Clay's going to be able to shoot the ball really well when he's 50 years old. That's something that's never going to go away. But when did you feel like he started, like, okay, we're seeing that old Clay with that great on-ball defense on the perimeter? Um, honestly, I felt like he struggled throughout um, all the way up till, but consistently on defensively, I, I'd say I... I didn't feel confident in him until, honestly, the finals. Um, he, I'm trying to think. Um, who was he? They, who was it? they had uh, Andrew Wiggins was their primary ball defender against basically throughout the regular season, the playoffs. He was probably the best wing player on the other team. That used to be Clay's job. Um, uh, he kind of um, figured it out in the um, in the finals. I remember during the regular season, um, uh, Warriors 
So one of the Warriors office told one of our one of my colleagues at the Heavy, Sean Devaney, um, that they, they they were fine with um, Clay Thompson's defense not being there as long as he could, you know, shoot the ball a bit. And then they he, they specifically said like Clay's fine, you know, Clay's fine if he gets benched if his shots not falling because his defense hasn't been there for um, Jordan Poole. Because Jordan Poole have been really letting it up all year. Um, and I think the team wasn't too sure uh, and the, the players weren't too sure about what he could bring defensively, but I do feel like in the finals, we really saw like him kind of showing more glimpses of what he used to be like pre when in the finals, right, let's go to the finals, uh, they're playing Boston. It didn't seem they had a clue what was going on through the first few games, too, when everybody's, you know, counting the Warriors out. Was there a moment, too, where you felt like in that game three, maybe at some point in that game three or game four, you're like, okay, this series is turning. And then for surely in game five, what did you feel like during that series, like, Things are getting different now. Like, Golden State now has the upper hand. Um, I think, um, you know, it was a really, really tough series um, for them. Um, You know, in the beginning, I think Vegas had, Vegas at one point had the Celtics as, like, minus 220 or so at 30 to win, I think, after game three when the Warriors were down 2-1. Um, I think, I think after game, when they won game four with Steph there, because they were pretty much trailing that whole game until he kind of went supernova and took over in the fourth. I think, and then they realized game five, it, I think they changed the final format this year to 2-2-1-1 instead of the 2-3-2. Two, two. They knew that they, they did talk about this during the press conference too, like, they're going to have the home crowd behind them and everything. So that would basically mean the role players would be playing better. Um, and at that point, I feel like um, game five was a game where I thought if they won this game, it's it seems like it's, it's kind of over. I think it's kind of like, I don't know if you remember, but this, I think it was 2000, 2013, I believe. I mean, I think 2013 when the Spurs were playing the Heat, everyone had the Heat as favorites, and then um, um, I think this is the the, the the rematch year when uh, the Heat beat them, uh, beat them in seven games, um, and then I I believe the um, the Spurs beat them in five games the year after. You um, just had that you just had that feeling like there's a synergy with this team at this point, like Andrew Wiggins knocking down threes with, like, constant, like, there's no, like, hesitation in the shot anymore. And then you saw <clears throat> even guys like Draymond hitting, you know, when Draymond's hitting threes at this point in his career, you know, the game's pretty much a lot for the Warriors. It's just the confidence level, like, uh, I remember thinking game one, game two, they, they were missing so many shots, layups and things like that. Then once, by the time it was game five, game six, like, they were, they were moving the ball more freely, and they just all kind of had a little Steph Curry. Yeah. Would you say Wiggins was the second best player on this title team? Oh, 
Oh, for sure, for sure. I think as the series progressed, um, even that, I'd say even the playoffs, he, he just found his own. I, I, I honestly didn't expect that, just watching him in the uh, regular season. He's always been a guy, you know, the guy that kind of runs back and forth. Sometimes he kind of gets, like, seasons out of the offense and gets in chunks of the game. And then, for, and then, you know, in the playoffs, like, he would, he would be guarding the best player on the other team. Um, he would be relied on to get offense flowing. I remember, I think in the finals, he had a lot of, he had a couple ISO plays where he would be bringing his ball down and then um, just going one-on-one at at the defender. And um, he had a couple nice drives that were a little, like, slowers and stuff. He wasn't just, like, pulling up, you know, like, having Stafford, Jordan, or Draymond set the offense up, and he would be sitting, sitting hitting, shooting corner threes, but he actually had more. He would be asked to do more. His usage kind of went up a bit, too, so that definitely goes back into, I think, it, his confidence level just really, really went up. Do you think this is going to be the Wiggins we see from now on as long as he's in Golden State? Like, he's going to take up that mantle that Clay previously had? Like, he's going to be the second-best warrior? Now, let's go to Steph. Average like 34, 5 and 5 in this series, something around there. Uh, shot 40% from three point in the finals. Getting that finals MVP, how much do you think it helps Steph Curry's legacy? I think for him specifically, it helped a lot. Um, he kept talking back about after, after they won the championship, after all the. Like we called himself the Teddy King, like reading up. He said he read up on everything, 
uh, the, the bad thing people were saying about him, how he could never win the finals MVP, that he always needed help, if it, you know, he could tell won that first year he won in 2015. Um, and then there was um, KD there, and they, a lot of people were saying you can never win without KD. And that, for him, I believe it kind of gave him validation, like, he kind of knew already, but he wanted that extra thing on his resume to be like, I had that finals MVP, like, you can't take that away from me. Um, I have um, two MVP season MVPs already. Everything else he's really accomplished, but this kind of just moved him into that conversation of, like, the top 10, 12 players of all time. And, you know, the I, I, I do believe that he's, he's 30... He's 34, 35 right now, but he still has a couple more. As a shooter, he, he has a long lifespan in terms of having a career in the NBA. I don't think I don't think this is over. He did say after the uh, after the final that he thinks I can they can be better next year. I, I believe that too. Um, so um, I, I well, I mean, the West this year was kind of it wasn't it hasn't been as great as it was. In the past, I think the East kind of has caught up, but I do think the the Warrior and he, he still has a couple finals MVP left in him. I feel if they can get back to that level, the finals next year and beyond. That. Why do you think the Warriors can be even better? They're young guys. Um, they're planning to play their young guys more. Wiseman, Moody, Kaminga. Kaminga has he has a lot of star potential. Moody is going to be that starter rotation guy that I think Steve Kirk kept mentioning that he sees a long career ahead for Moody but the, but the 3 D is kind of like his, his four at this point I think he has a lot to the game he has to offer um, Jordan Poole is he's an all-star he's going to make he's going to have a couple all-stars under his belt so the way he can the way he can um, create offense for his teammates and himself the shots he's able to he has so much range just that, you know, and, you know, when you win the title, a lot of for the young guys, too, the confidence level goes up a lot. And that's just going to feed into their potential as a team moving forward. Um, as they, as uh, Steph, Clay, and Draymond get older, they won't be as great, but those younger guys are going to take them up. They're going to really close the gap between their skill level with the older guys, and that's just going to help the team get to a higher skill. Now, with Steve Kerr winning, I think there should be a lot more talk about him and where he is all-time in the pantheon of coaches. Do you think Steph Kerr gets discredited a little bit, too? Because uh, people, when people talk about the great coaches, I always feel like people don't mention Steve Kerr enough. And when you look at him, he's one with the same team, but three different uh, uh, types of teams, right? You have the early Warriors with young Steph, Clay, Draymond. Then you go to the KD Warriors. Then you go to this Warriors with an older Steph. Uh, Draymond and Clay, and then these younger pieces, and he always finds a way to meld it all together. Uh, so, do you feel like Steph, uh, Steve Kerr gets a little discredited? I do. It's a lot has to go back to the star power that he has behind him. I, I, it's kind of like when you look at Phil Jackson, right? Like Phil Jackson has always been known as a guy who only wants to coach teams that have a chance to win contending titles. Um, and even look at Eric Spolstra when he first came in. It was a LeBron, Dwayne Wade, and um, Chris Bosh. He was discredited a lot during his early career. Everyone thought he, you know, he had that famous uh, brush up with, with LeBron um, heading when LeBron 
I was riding back to the bench, and people were talking about, oh, uh, it doesn't look like Air Force is going to be here long. Um, and he's not that great coach because he has all these stars behind him, so he's going to rack up all these wins. Steve Kerr was the same thing. He came in um, right after Mark Jackson. Oh, I mean, he took them to that next level. Um, I think they lost in the semis to that Clippers that year with Mark Jackson, and then they fired Mark Jackson and got Steve Kerr in, and then from that point on, they were winning finals. Then. They were winning titles already. Um, I don't feel like he does get a little bit of a... Um, disrespect if I may say um, I remember earlier that during the regular season when they were losing a lot a lot of the fan base the Warriors fans were saying that, oh we need to fire him he doesn't know what he's doing so a lot of like chatter about like yeah Steve Curry I mean uh, Steph Curry is one of the best shooters and play as well and Draymond's an all-timer in terms of his defense and his just his personality and being able to be like a, kind of like a like a quasi-coach on the floor. Um, Steve Kerr definitely doesn't get his uh, marbles as well. And I think when it's all said and done, people are going to look back and say he, he was one of the best coaches uh, in NBA history with what he's been able to do. Even I'd say this title run this year with their roster really put him up a notch because there were a lot of question marks with this team heading into the season based off their last two seasons when they missed the, they had the worst record two years ago with 15 wins during that pandemic year and then last year they missed the playing game but they he was he, this year during the regular season every it seemed like every game he was doing in different rotations to see what would work starting lineups and people were getting so fed up with it but he I think he had in his mind he was trying to figure out what he can think of, what would work so he can reach for the playoffs. And, um, I mean, players did come back, everyone did kind of get healthy in the playoffs, but he, he, he's willing. I remember during the final, they game five, he benched Dream on with like seven minutes left in the game. And, you know, they lost that game. He was going to get a lot of crap. To, um, but, you know, he's, he's at that level as a coach where he felt like, he can make that move and the players were going to live with it because they trusted him in terms of how how great of a coach he is you know sam i want to thank you for coming on the podcast man i appreciate it thank you thank you uh really appreciate you having me on um all right and once again i want to thank chris and sam both for coming on the podcast i really appreciate it and I'll thank all of you for tuning into this episode, the 451st episode of Barbershop Sports Talk. She said she too young, no one, no man. So she